It's a joy to be with you this morning. Now, if you're not here last Sunday, thank you, Alex. If you weren't here last Sunday, um, unfortunately, you have to uh, listen to the story of how I hurt my Achilles tendon. But it was very anticlimactic. So for those of you who weren't here, feel free to listen uh, as I talked about what happened last week. But um, do you mind taking these, Eric? Thank you. Um, so I want to wish you all a happy new year. And um, I know that there's a lot of late night festivities planned for many of you before we head into the long, cold months of January and February. I know when I lived in Alberta, those were the coldest months of the year. And those were often very kind of, you get very depressed in the winter just because it was so cold. And so I want you to enjoy today. Make sure that you're with people. And I learned something very interesting when me and Yvette first uh, moved here. We lived with uh, the guest choirs, and uh, I was told that calories don't count on holidays. So, I mean, and Mark's a doctor, so if Mark's saying it, it must be true. Um, All kidding aside, you know, eat healthily, but also have fun. And if you gain weight, blame it on Mark, not on me. But anyways, yeah. I really hope that tonight you can be with friends and family. I think that's important. And to celebrate the goodness and faithfulness of God. You know, as we were singing that last song, I was thinking if I had to sum up the New Testament in one word, there's lots of words you could use, but it's really the faithfulness of God. Jesus is the embodiment of the faithfulness of God and his goodness to us. Um, And so, you know, just saying that one thing I want to say that I'm thankful for and seeing God's faithfulness is me and Yvette coming to Evergreen. It's been such a blessing to be here. I mean, I can think of so many examples of how we've been blessed by different people readily off the top of my head. Um, I, I feel overwhelmed, um, to be honest with you, uh, just how loving and giving and generous you guys have been to me and Yvette, so thank you. Um, <clears throat> as we head into this new year, I think it's important that, you know, we look back and we also look forward, but also we're present at the same time. And And sometimes that's difficult to kind of think of the past, to think of the future to come and to be present. Um, For example, I have struggles being in the present. Uh, My wife could tell you that sometimes she'll say something and my mind will be completely somewhere off and she'll be like, were you listening? I was like, no, I was not listening at all. (laughs) It's not, not that I'm trying to ignore her, but often I get distracted very easily. And my wife is one of those people that is like, She's par excellence for being in the moment. Like she is dialed into what people are saying. She's dialed into their emotions. And for me, I'm kind of a little bit like a squirrel. You know, like a squirrel's over here, then it's over there, and it's up a tree, it's down a tree, it's going for some nuts. And I'm, I'm rarely centered in the present. And, I, and, you know, and because of not being centered in the present, often I can, I can miss people because it's so easy just to, you know, think of the future, to think of the past, but then we don't see the people that we're interacting with. We don't see the people in front of us because we're just so fixated on other things. Uh, I remember last year, probably about five months before he came to Evergreen, my best friend said to me rather bluntly, he said, you're always making plans and you're always trying to map everything out and trying to have like timelines for this and that. And he said like, when does that ever work for you? Like, he's like, that's never worked. (laughs) I was like, you have a point. And um, now he's... He used more colorful language than that. He's a rather blunt person, even for Alberta. But I remember being very like, yeah, you're right. Like, I'm too stuck in the future sometimes. I'm too thinking about what's to come. And I miss the people in front of me. I miss people made in God's image because I'm, I'm so fixated on trying to figure out the future. I wasn't creating space for God to meet me in the present because I was so stuck somewhere else in my mind. And maybe for you, 
you get stuck in something else. Maybe it's fear, trying to control the future. To be honest, that's a lot of my struggles come. I have fear, and so I want to control the future. What's going to happen? What's going to happen, Lord? Or maybe for you, the past was difficult. Maybe you went through trauma. Maybe there's things that have happened, and so you medicate yourself, or you try to ignore the past and try to just kind of push past it. Because, I mean, let's be honest, dealing with trauma or with things that have happened to us can sometimes be really difficult. It's not fun. Um, And don't get me wrong. It's good to plan for the future. I'm not saying don't plan for the future. And I'm not saying it's not, sometimes we need a good distraction. It's not wrong to watch a movie or to, um, you know, kind of enjoy ourselves that way. But sometimes what happens is we do that too much and we get pulled away from the present. We get pulled away into all these other things that are kind of taking us away from people in front of us. I think a key that helps me to be grounded in the present and appropriately kind of thoughtful about the past and future is just being grounded in the faithfulness of God, just being grounded in Jesus. And I'll be honest, I don't always do that the best, but I think, you know, we're called to be centered in Jesus. We all have our struggles. We all have our fears. We all have our worries, our, you know, kind of our synchronicities, our, our like things about us that make other people crazy, but that we want to hold on to. But I think the thing that helps us as a church move into the forward is being centered on Jesus. It's easy to it's easy to get grounded in other things, to get caught up in other things, to be honest. I, I feel it all the time. This morning, I'll be reading from Psalm 36. So if you've got a Bible or phone, feel free to turn there. Um, but I'm just going to pray before we uh, read the scriptures. Father, we just come to you in humility as your children, knowing that you love us and you care for us, Father. Lord, I, for some people here, Lord, this year has been a tough year. There's been difficulties, Lord. There's been loss. There's been sour, Lord. For some, it's been a good year, Lord, of, of um, you know, Lord, of experiencing new things, of new life, Lord. Even my own father, I think of Noah and the blessing that he is, Lord. Lord, wherever we are at this moment, renew our minds, open the scriptures, help us to experience the word Jesus. Lord, Holy Spirit, make Jesus come alive to us this morning as we read from the Psalms. Lord, guide us as we head into this new year. Ground us in your faithfulness. Center us in Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So I want to give a kind of a brief, brief overview of the Psalms, just because I've never actually talked on the Psalms before. The Psalms for the Israelite community were kind of the heart of worship. When Israel would worship, Psalms were kind of like their songbook. You know, we had hymn books 20 years ago, 30 years ago in a lot of churches, and the Psalms in many ways were their hymn books. It was the thing that they read. It was the scripture they would go back to and they would celebrate. And the Psalms were used, you know, for lament, so they would petition God or they would cry out when things were going hard. They would have praise. There would be prayer. Sometimes there'd be even petition. Lord, why don't you do something? And to me, the Psalms are so beautiful. They're so real. They're so raw. Um, I'm not sure about you. When I was in Sunday school, I wasn't really taught kind of to be angry with God or to like wrestle with him. It was often like, oh, let's say a nice prayer or sing a nice worship song. <laughs> like there's, there's place for that. Don't get me wrong. But I love the Psalms because they're so raw at times and so real, unfiltered. Um, And they're just, I mean, if you think about the Israelite community lived in a harsh and difficult world. And so when we read the Psalms, we're connecting with Israel, ancient Israel, and we're connecting with the church past that have used the Psalms to worship. So let's read Psalm 36. Sorry. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of a wicked person Oh, sorry, I'm reading from the NLT. Sorry, sin whispers to the wicked. 
deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God at all. In their blind conceit, they cannot see how wicked they really are. Everything they say is crooked and deceitful. They refuse to act wisely or do good. They lie awake at night, hatching sinful plots. Their actions are never good. They make no attempt to turn from evil. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the ocean depths. You care for people and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. You feed them from the abundance of your own house. Let them drink from your river of delights, for you are the fountain of life, the light by which we see. Pour out your unfailing love on those who love you. Give justice to those with honest hearts. Don't let the proud trample on me or the wicked push me around. Look, those who have done evil have fallen. They are thrown down, never to rise again. Are we grounded in the faithfulness of God. Sin has a way of, of clouding things, of, of binding us, of blinding us to what's going on. You know, the first point I'm talking about is sin is, is blinding. And this is, this is a fundamental truth. And to be honest, I'm hesitant to talk about sin. I don't like talking about sin. I mean, who really does? I mean, you know, you have some pastors that sometimes go really hard on this. But to be honest, I don't like talking about sin because guess what? I have sin in my heart. I'm aware that I'm broken, that I'm not perfect. We all struggle with sin from one degree to another. And if you're not, if you say you don't, well, I have to say you're probably a liar. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to say that harshly, but if we think we don't have sin or we don't struggle, I mean, scripture is very clear. It's a human reality. And let's also be honest about sin. There have been churches that sometimes have been very, con lots of condemnation or legalism, where they talk about things that aren't really even sin. I remember um, just even how people that were struggling with sin or caught in sin, and sometimes how they were dealt harshly with by the church, not seeking restoration, but more in condemnation. And for me, the church setting that I was raised in, there was almost like a demon behind every corner. It's almost like everything was spiritual. And I remember that I was so scared, and I was always hide. If I, if I sinned, there was so much shame, and I didn't want to talk about it because I was so afraid of, of facing judgment and condemnation. And I remember when I was, uh, the first church I pastored in actually, sometimes people would call sin things that weren't even sinful. There was a large, I shouldn't say a large, but there was a significant segment of that church that was against playing cards and TVs and thought they were inherently evil. And obviously there can be things on TV that <laughs> they're not good and sinful, but just sometimes churches in the past got so wrapped up in things that weren't even sin per se. And though churches have sometimes reacted harshly in the past, I fear that we can run the danger of swinging the other way, where we don't want to talk about sin, where we don't want to talk about how it can poison us, how it can shape us in ways that bring us away from Jesus. What sin is maybe blinding you this morning that's affecting you? Psalm 36, the psalmist sees the insidious damage that sin does. He's lamenting because there's these wicked people. And it's actually really interesting in verse 1. It seems that sin itself is almost alive. It whispers into the heart of the wicked. We also see this in the New Testament, how Paul often talks about sin. Sin almost seems to be a power in some way over us. And here in this psalmist, the corrupting nature of sin 
blinds the wicked person. The word, it's actually interesting, the word for fear here in, in verse 1, it's not the usual word for fear in Hebrew. This word fear is actually can be translated as dread or terrified. Sin has a way of hollowing out our sensitivities to Jesus. It has a way of shaping us, molding us, and all of a sudden we no longer see sin as sin. I know because I've been there. Psalm 36 says it even blinds them so much. They do not realize how wicked they become. They've been deceived, caught up in their wickedness. The psalmist goes on to say how evil this person has become, that they're hatching sinful plots and their actions are never good. Now, we don't know who the psalmist has in mind. Perhaps he's thinking of a personal enemy. Maybe this is someone that's causing him stress, that's against him, or maybe it's a national enemy of ancient Israel. And it's possible that he's using extreme language. And if we're fair in society, most people do not usually lie awake hatching sinful plots. Yvette does not come up to me and say, Stephen, you need to go to bed. You're hatching sinful plots again. Go to sleep. <laughs> That's not usually something I struggle with, hatching sinful plots at night. But if I'm honest, there have been times in my life where I've nurtured grudges, where I've been hurt by people and have held on to that for years. I remember one time when I was in Edmonton, I was driving and the Lord, as I was driving, he kind of confronted me. He's like, you have this grudge against this person for two or three years. And I was thinking, oh, I do. <laughs> Realizing, okay, Lord, I have to give this grudge up. I didn't want to. And I think we also have to be real. There are people that are consumed by sin. People that live, live selfishly. We see this Sometimes uh, in the banking industry, what happened in the U.S., the rampant corruption that destroyed millions of lives. We see this sometimes with companies that want to make money off of war, the military-industrial complex, or pharmaceutical companies that sometimes make certain drugs prohibitively expensive to turn an ungodly profit because they know that people need them to survive. Now, are all these people in these companies evil? No. But there are people that are consumed by greed or consumed by evil. And it's not just in the corporate world. It's in the private world. It happens right where we are sometimes. And we have to be aware of it. Maybe you identify with the psalmist. Perhaps you don't. But let's not dismiss wickedness just because we may have not experienced it to the same degree. It's easy for us to play off small sin, to think, oh, it's, it's, not, it's not that inappropriate. You know, oh, it's just, it was just one small look on the internet. It's, it's, not a, it's not a big deal. It's just one picture. Or, you know, um, I only stole a little bit of money. And you know what? My boss owes me more anyways. I'm more important. I am owed that money. Or they should be paying me more. Or, you know, I was just a bit creative with my taxes, you know, just move some numbers around a little bit here and there. Or maybe, you know, I didn't gossip. I was just sharing with my friends. You know, like, and it's true anyways. That person will never know. Isn't it easy how quickly we can make little excuses for sin and how that sin can just slowly, slowly grow? Sure, I'm not sure about you, but I've felt sin and compromise and small things as it slowly seared my conscience over and over until one day you become enslaved addicted, feeling in prison. Sin is insidious. It's easy to make excuses for it. It slowly seeps in. It slowly slides in. It's like a, a slow poison. It blinds us and then it binds us. The author of the psalm recognizes the wickedness of sin and sinful people. And when we see sin, 
and how it destroys others, we should try to help them. But sometimes, it can become people's existence for living. I remember growing up in the church, people talked about sin so much, but like Jesus was often not the center. And so it's important that we talk about sin, but as we do that, we point towards Jesus. Because it's easy to get fixated on things that aren't Jesus. So sin is very important. But what is more important is Jesus, and that we turn our eyes towards Jesus, even in our own brokenness. It's so easy when people are struggling with sin to say, I want to beat sin, I want to beat sin. And so they just focus on the sin problem. And I'm not saying that's not important sometimes. But would we turn our eyes towards Jesus in the midst of our brokenness? That is where true healing comes from. We can't do it ourselves. We're not meant to do it ourselves. That's why we need Jesus. The second point is God's love is faithful. God's love is faithful. Psalm 36, 5 to 9. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the ocean depths. You care for people and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. You feed them from the abundance of your own house, letting them drink from your river of delights, for you are the fountain of life, the light by which you see. Isn't it interesting here that the psalmist chooses to focus on the faithfulness of God in his plight with dealing with the wicked? I'm not sure about you, but sometimes when I'm dealing with wicked things or when people have hurt me or wronged me, my prayers often look like this. Lord, you know I'm in the right and they're in the wrong. Please do something. <laughs> I mean, let, let's be honest, we all do that. Lord, this person wronged me. I want a justice. I am in the right, they're in the wrong. But the psalmist doesn't do that. He actually goes towards the faithfulness of God. I remember one time I was in a church, I'd been attending there, and there were some people that said some very hurtful things about a friend of mine. The leadership of the church didn't realize I was friends with this person. Uh, he was kind of like a semi-famous um, theologian a little bit. And uh, they thought what he was doing was very um, twisted and evil. And they said some really mean things about him. But they didn't realize I was actually good friends with him. I used to go to Bible study with him all the time and hang out with him. And for me, it was like, man, if they found out that I'm friends with him and that I even share similar convictions as him, they're kind of like, <laughs> what are they going to think about me? And I got so angry inside. It's like, Lord, I'm right. They're wrong. These guys, they're idiots. I'm right. It was all focused on my self-righteousness instead of on God. Instead of saying, Lord, can you maybe show these people, open their eyes, help them to understand. It's all about me. The song focused on verses 5 to 9, is on the love of Yahweh. He opens up in verse 5 with Yahweh's unfailing love and mentions it again in verse 7. And he expounds on his unfailing love. His love is as vast as the heavens. His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. His righteousness is like the mighty mountain. His justice like the ocean depths. That his unfailing love is precious. The focus of the psalmist is not that he's in these wicked people, but he focuses on God using covenantal love. The psalmist uses this covenantal language for love throughout this section. You notice where it says, as high as the heavens and deep as the ocean. The heavens were thought of God's kind of throne room where he was. And the deep of the ocean, some people think that the psalmist here is referring to uh, the flood, that this is the same Hebrew here. And so he's kind of remembering God, reminding God of his covenant with Noah, which is why it talks about people caring for animals and people alike following. 
And the psalmist continues with this covenantal language with Yahweh. In verse 8, reference to the house of God, which is the temple of God, where covenant relationship was kind of uh, continued, where there'd be sacrifices. And then here in this psalm, you have people eating from the abundance, from the fatty portions, which is usually the priest would eat from sacrifices. And so the psalmist is reminding himself of the covenant that Yahweh has with him. In Hebrew term, in Hebrew, this term for unfailing love or faithful love is chesed. And this is the love that Yahweh has in covenant. It says, a love that says, I will not give up on you. It's a love that says, I'm in relationship with you. I'm tied to you. We're not tied apart. It's a love that's sacrificial. Jesus is the embodiment of the chesed love of God. It's a love that says, I am faithful. I am steadfast. The psalmist is reminding himself of the Lord, that he's grounded himself in the Lord's covenant and his love. Do we ground ourselves in the love of God? Perhaps you're like me. Sometimes you ground yourself in your own self-righteousness. Maybe for others, is it your wealth? Perhaps you have a really nice car and a giant home, and maybe that's what you ground yourself in or find your identity in. Maybe it's your social capital, your business, your car. Maybe even some, it's victimhood. What are we grounding ourselves in? Are we grounding ourselves in Jesus or these other things? I know because I do it all the time. When I was younger, uh, I remember struggling with God. I loved basketball and I wanted to go play in university. And I remember God was calling me to pastoral ministry. And I remember when I was doing my bachelor's at a Bible college, I remember just that struggle with God. Just that struggle of wanting to hold on to things that grounded me that weren't Jesus. It's so easy to get grounded in things that don't matter. It's so easy to get fixated on things that, you know, that don't feed our souls. My last point is we're called to contend for the love of God. To contend for the love of God. And I know this language might be a little uncomfortable because it's kind of uncomfortable for me. But this is what the Psalms demonstrate. Psalms 36, 10 to 12 Pour out your unfailing love on those who love you. Give justice to those with honest hearts. Do not let the proud trample me or the wicked push me around. Look, those who have done evil have fallen. They are thrown down never to rise again. Verse 10, the psalmist is telling God, do something, do something, God. He's asking God to act according to his covenant love. The psalmist is holding God accountable in a sense. He's saying to God, you know, you're, we're in covenant relationship here. You need to act. And he's saying, give justice. Don't let me be trampled. I'll be honest. This raw honesty and calling on God is difficult. As I mentioned before, this isn't the prayers we were taught to pray in Sunday school. Taught to say nice prayers. But God wants us to wrestle with him, to contend with him. Think of Moses and Yahweh and how Moses wrestles with God, not literally, but when Yahweh wants to destroy Israel or when Abraham is bargaining with God, we're called to wrestle with God. I mean, let's be honest, what parents here don't want their children to enter into discussion with them? If Noah could talk, he can't yet, but like, I love it when he makes baby sounds. You know, like as a father, we want our children to talk to us or as a mother. And I'll be honest, when we talk to God, and ask him to move according to his covenant doesn't mean that things will necessarily work out as how we assume or what we want. Here in the ending, the psalmist seems to have found a quick resolution. I'll be honest, I kind of, I don't like the ending to the psalm. It feels like almost too neat. It's like, oh, look, everything's worked out. And sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. But we are called to contend 
for the covenant love of God, to ask him to move, to show up, to work. I'll be honest, it's difficult to do that sometimes. Sometimes we feel hopeless in our prayers saying, God, where are you? Are you not going to do something? I have a friend who's struggling with severe depression and some other mental adversities. And, um, and he's had an extremely difficult life with a lot of loss. And he's by himself. All his family have passed away, unfortunately. And I talk to him. I try to talk to him weekly on the phone. But I'll be honest, in my prayers, I often feel hopeless. I feel it's difficult to contend for the love of God. Because I ask God, where are you in his life? But in these times, I need to remember that God is a God of faithful love, of covenant love. It doesn't mean that things will work out or that my friend is going to turn his life around. But I do know that God is good and always working for the good, and I can trust him in that. Throughout Psalm 36, the focus is on God's hesed love, his faithful, loyal covenant love. For us believers in the age of Christ, Jesus is the embodiment, the fulfillment of that manifestation of God's love. It's the only place to be grounded in. It's the only place that's trustworthy. But notice I didn't say that it was safe or that it's easy. Following Jesus is difficult because sometimes he's going to ask us, are you willing to deal with that sin? Are you willing to give it up? Sometimes he's going to ask you to confess, to submit to another believer. He desires growth in us like any father or mother would. I'm sure those of you who have children, you want your children to grow. You don't want them to stay the same. And sometimes that means pushing them, making them feel uncomfortable. As we come to the New Year's and we think of this psalm, there are three things I want you to consider. One in the past, one in the present, and one in the future. Where have you been blinded to sin in your life this past year? Where has sin set up shop, so to speak? Maybe you become relaxed about something you should not. Allow the Holy Spirit to comfort you, to encourage you, to convict you. His covenant love will help us into freedom if we're willing to be honest, to confess, to submit. Second, ask what have you been grounded in? In this present moment, maybe you don't feel grounded at all. I encourage you, be grounded in the covenantal, faithful love of Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Find your identity in him. This is the one I struggle with the most. Third, as you think of the upcoming year, what do you need to contend for? To cry out to God for, to ask him to show his faithfulness, to show, Lord, show up, do something. What does God want you to pray for? To see his kingdom come. And maybe if nothing comes to mind, maybe that's a sign you need to get your hands dirty for the kingdom. Get involved somewhere. Help others. I pray that as we head into this new year, that we can rest and find our identity in Jesus. Timiel is going to come up and lead us in a spiritual practice, but I'll just end in a prayer. Father, I thank you for Evergreen. Father, help us to be grounded in your faithful covenant love. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, Father. Help us to be hearts of honesty and openness like the psalmist, Lord, in your name. Amen. Grab my crutches, sorry. You got this? You okay? I'm good. We all just hold our breath, don't we, as Stephen enters and exits the platform. He's been practicing, I, I assure you. He's good. 
I don't know uh, how you feel about New Year's resolutions. Uh, I think as we get older and wiser and more experienced in the world, New Year's resolutions are something that many of us kind of give up on, <laughs> right? We know the statistics. It's like 8% of people stick with their New Year's resolution. Um, but whether you are a New Year's resolution person or not, the beginning of a new year is always an excellent time to reflect, to spend some time reflecting on how God has been working in our lives and on how he's calling us to move forward. And when I was in uh, fresh out of high school, I did a discipleship program called Out of Town, where we traveled to all kinds of places across uh, Canada and Guatemala. And I'll never forget the struggle of packing the night before leaving, because we were only allowed to take one bag, and I am not a light packer, okay? And I couldn't figure out how to get everything I wanted to take with me into this one bag. But over the course of the year, I got really used to kind of laying things out and doing an inventory of what I needed to leave behind and what I needed to take with me and what new things I needed to get a hold of for my next destination. My winter boots, for example, were really important in the Rocky Mountains in the winter, but I didn't need them on the beach in Guatemala. Before I left, I always checked to make sure that I had uh, my wallet and my Bible. And at that time, it, it was before the advent of cell phones, for me at least. And so it was my iPhone video. I always checked to make sure I kind of had my, my basics. And then uh, I, the one time we went horseback riding. And so in that instance, that was like the clothes I wore horseback riding were something I, I disposed of immediately because I knew if I even tried to take them with me, everything that I had would just smell atrocious. And as we move into a new year, we have the, uh, the opportunity to kind of do the same thing, to take a look at the things that we've been carrying with us and to decide what we need to let go of what we want to carry with us, what we want to hold on to as we move into the next year, and what we might need to open ourselves up to uh, in this season ahead. And so that's what we're going to do together now. We're going to take some time to uh, practice a spiritual practice called the examine, which is really just a way of reflecting on where we've been and ask God, asking God how he's calling us to move forward. And so I'm just going to invite you um, to take a moment right now to just center yourself in God's presence and to prepare to, to enter into this time of reflection. Get comfortable in your seats and take a deep breath. And regardless of how busy your week might have been, just take, take a moment to let yourself be reminded that God is here, that you are in his presence, that he sees you, knows you, he loves you, he's with you, he's always with you. He's as close as the air that you're breathing. Just let that sink in. Focus your attention on that as you breathe in and breathe out.
Now take a few moments to reflect back over the past year with gratitude. What gifts did God pour into your life over the course of this past year? What are you thankful for? And just let yourself enter into worship as you thank God for those things now. As you prepare to turn the page on the calendar and to start a brand new year, what do you need to let go of? Is there something that's been weighing you down that you've been carrying with you? Is there something you've been hanging on to that maybe even served you well for a time, but it's preventing you from opening up to what God has for you next? Maybe it's a habit that you've gotten into or a way of thinking. Maybe it's fear or resentment or shame. What do you need to let go of? And just release that to God now. Spend some, some time praying through that. As you think about moving into the year ahead, what is something that you want to make sure you hold on to? Maybe this past year has opened up some new ways for you to connect with God. Maybe you've had the chance to invest more time in your relationships or your health. Maybe there's something you've learned or a truth that's been really hitting home for you. What's God calling you to make sure you take with you as you move into the year ahead? What is something new that you sense God inviting you into as we move into a new year? Is there a risk he's calling you to take? Is there a relationship he's calling you to invest in? Maybe there's a new rhythm or a posture that he's inviting you into. Maybe there's just one word that God's laying on your heart. He's inviting you to carry with you and guide you forward into the new year. What is a new thing that God is calling you into as we set into the year ahead? to the ways 
realize that God is moving in our lives and open to all of the opportunities that he calls us into. I'm gonna um, just close this time of reflection with Psalm 25 verses three to five and um, let's just each make this our own prayer as we prepare to move into a new year. It says, show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me all day long. 